Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 1001. On this week's show, we begin with David Lorelo welcoming Joel Goldberg, broadcaster and reporter for the Kansas City Royals. David and Joel are both big fans of Royals rookie Bobby Witt Jr., but David didn't put him on his AL Rookie of the Year ballot, and the pair discuss why that is and the still very high expectations they have for the phenom. We also hear how Kansas City is still partly Salvador Perez's town, how Scott Barlow is underrated around the league, what to expect when it comes to the Royals potentially getting a new ballpark, and the legacy Dayton Moore leaves behind after so many years. I think, David, time will tell how different they are. What what I know is that Dayton Moore, who you really, I don't think you'll find anyone that has bad things to say about Dayton in the baseball world. He's so highly respected by executives, by scouts. Scouts from every team love him because he, he was a scout. He understands the importance of, importance of scouting and, and, and all those roles behind the scenes. And so I think that if there is a knock on Dayton more that people say, Dayton's used to say this, is that he can be too loyal. And that's a rare trait to have. I mean, it's an incredible trait to have. But I think that they would like the Royals to be a little bit more transactional. After that, Ben Clemens is joined by Eric Longenhagen for some banter about the recent transactions that kicked off the hot stove. They discussed the players on the margins who found themselves DFA'd or moved this week, and what teams like the Braves, Marlins, Red Sox, Orioles, and Rays are up to. The duo also talk about things like center fielders who provide a floor with their glove but can't quite hit well enough for the majors, how catchers that are good at framing will be valued going forward, waiting catcher focus on framing versus blocking, and discussing whether pop time or arm accuracy to second base is more important. Ben and Eric also consider what they will one day know that they didn't know, and how technology could possibly mislead us along the way. I just wonder if we're going to think about this later and go, man, we just had no clue what we were doing. I think that that's true with a lot of stuff. I think radar guns maybe made us worse at evaluating pitching for like 30 years. (laughs) Really? Like, if you didn't know how fast the pitch was and you were just visually assessing quality, don't you think you're going to be more sensitive as a scout to things like angle and shape and rather than leaning on? So, yeah, I think in the draft, especially when in a pre-track man era where velocity was the main objective measure of any pitch that we were seeing other than some of the performance data that would become more and more granular certainly before trackman we could evaluate if we wanted to sit there and measure it like the swinging strike rate on a given pitch you know right. you could conceivably send scouts to college games or whatever to do that but yeah like when velocity was the king data point for measuring pitching maybe we got worse at it for a while and weren't yeah. sensitive to why some of these slower fastballs are doing well and vice versa. But before we get to these great segments, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to head on over and check out the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only is it the best place for you to scoop some slick Fangraphs swag, but you can pick up an ad-free membership for yourself or as a holiday gift for a loved one. Becoming a member is not only the best way to browse Fangraphs.com, but it is, of course, the best way to support us in doing everything we do, from the leaderboards to the projections to the daily analysis to the podcast to everything else. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorela. My guest on this segment is Joel Goldberg, broadcaster and reporter for the Kansas City Royals. Joel, thanks for coming on to Fangrass Audio, and I hope it's not too chilly in Kansas City on this uh, November morning. Well, 
it is extremely chilly, unfortunately. I think like a lot of the country. So that's, I don't know, the good old expression of it is what it is. Nobody really likes that. Uh, some people like the cold, I guess. Not really baseball weather, but I don't know about you. Uh, it doesn't have to be officially the hot stove, or I don't know when that officially is designated, but it's always good to talk baseball, and it's always good to catch up with you, David. And I guess this will be my second time catching up with you in some form or another, not in Boston, because the last time I saw you was in Cleveland. Yes, in the last uh, last week of the regular season. And one of the things that we talked about, Joel, which I guess we will lead with here topic-wise, I told you that I had an American League Rookie of the Year ballot this year. And uh, you told me that Bobby Witt Jr. definitely belongs on ballots. After a lot of deliberation, I actually went Julio Rodriguez, Adley Rutschman, Stephen Kwan, and no Bobby Witt Jr. So let's talk about maybe why I was wrong. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, the, the first thing I would say to all of us that that either cover or broadcast or are embedded with teams is that I think it's easy to to say any one of us are homers, we are in, in a lot of ways. I mean, we're, we're playing to our audience, which is not a national audience. But but I think the, the greater piece to that is that, and I don't remember how many games that we did on TV this year. It was, well, we lost a handful of some streaming services, maybe 155 games this year. So I saw just about every game that Bobby Wood Jr. played in person. And so, of course, I'm partial to him. And I, I, I truly believe of all those players that you voted for and that you mentioned that he has as legitimate of a chance of becoming a bona fide superstar and the best of any one of the players that you mentioned over the course of time. I do believe that he was among the best this year. When you look at, at the numbers that he put up, I think a lot of them will back that up. It, it's hard to argue. I mean, I think everybody in America saw that Julio Rodriguez was the rookie of the year. I think what also helped him Two things. One, playing for a team that was contending certainly got him a lot of exposure. Understandably, Seattle doesn't get a ton of exposure. Cleveland doesn't either. And Stephen Kwan was playing for a good team. Baltimore certainly had their run. Um, I think Adley Rutschman had a lot of fame coming in just because of where he was selected in the draft and coming out of college. Bobby Wood Jr. was selected high in the draft, playing in a smaller market, maybe not as much attention. But I think the other thing that helped Julio Rodriguez uh, is one, just the style, the way he plays the game. And being on center stage and mic'd up and absolutely relishing the spotlight that he had in the All-Star game really, I think, put him on the map and put a target on his back that, that he lived up to. I, I think Bobby Wood Jr. is very much in that discussion, though. No, I do agree with you, Joel, particularly in the, you know, the I guess, highest ceiling of the three going forward. I do recall telling somebody, talking about my vote, that if I could have any of the four as far as, you know, what they could potentially do, I'd probably take Witt because I do think he is going to be a superstar. I think people maybe don't realize just how young he is, Joel. Yeah, he turned 22 during the season. I think it was June. And I think none of this is going to show up in, in rookie of the year type of voting, nor should it. But I think it is potentially, you know, a sneak peek into the future is the way, and I can't speak to the other guys, although I've heard incredible things about the three players that you voted for and, and certainly, you know, saw each of them play. I saw Stephen Kwan play more than more than any of them. I, I think I don't think he ever swung and missed at a pitch and never made an out, you know, in 18 or 19 games against the Royals. It's an exaggeration, although I know that, that the Royals opened against the Guardians this year, and Stephen Kwan, in that series... At Kauffman Stadium back in April, I think he 
I think he swung at something like, you know, 50 pitches over the 40 something pitches over the, over the, the course of the series. And he never missed, he never swung and missed on one. And I think he ended up batting something like 600 in that series against the Royals. And so, and it kind of felt like it was that way every single time the Royals played him. So I, I, I could really vouch for Stephen Kwan as a guy that probably doesn't have the name that Rutschman and Rodriguez do. And even Witt to an extent, just because, you know, any baseball fan knows the name Bobby Witt. And as soon as they figure out, it's his Bobby Witt senior son. But there's something about him, and maybe this comes, David, from from his background of growing up in a major league household, albeit a major league household where when he was born, his dad was done pitching, but he also has a brother-in-law that, that pitched some in the big league. So he was, he was hanging out at batting practice. He was hanging around big leaguers and he was raised just really well by his mom and his dad. And so I bring all this up because he does not act like a 21 or a 22 year old. He is never a kid that looked overmatched, never a kid that had those wide eyes walking around a clubhouse or stadiums. Yes, he can act like a 22-year-old, of course, but he he looks like a guy that belongs. He looks like a guy that is never freaked out by a situation, that is kind of very, very calm about everything. He has a nice presence to him and a quiet kid, very respectful. But I, I could just see from day one and, and even knowing him before he came up to the big leagues, you know, he made the opening day roster and he just never looked overwhelmed. He had some stretches of some slumps, some defensive slumps, which I think probably more were health related than anything. He battled some injuries at times. But this is why I think that he's got such a great future is he's just scratching the surface and all the tools that you're seeing and uh, and, and all that in the stats. But he just has that it factor. I know that's a tough thing to measure, but I, I, I know for a fact it comes from, from his background. And so I think he, you know, he looks like a guy that, that could be a force in the league for, you know, potentially 15 years. Bobby Witt Jr. certainly has the, the it factor. He's a superstar in the making, and he's not alone on the Royals team when it comes to young, promising players. That said, how much of a buzz is there with this team? You're in a market, obviously, where Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs carry an awful lot of weight. Yeah, as they should, as he should. I've joked, David, for a long time, and I, but I, I know this is right, that you know, it, this is Patrick Mahomes' town. Before that, it really was Salvador Perez's town and still is because Salvador Perez is the face of the Royals. I, mean, I know we're talking young here, and, and now he's the older guy, I think at 31 years old, I think. But he's been the man since making his debut in 2011 and quickly stole the hearts of, of Royals fans with his big personality and all the Gatorade bucket dumps that they call the Salvi Splash in Kansas City. He's on billboards and the whole works. And, you know, I kind of, I kind of joke that if Salvador Perez is walking down the street, he couldn't walk down the street anywhere in Kansas City because he's such a imposing figure with the big, but the big smile, physically, you know, imposing. He's such a, a big man. Everybody would notice Salvador Perez. But, if Patrick Mahomes were walking on the other side of the street, nobody would even see Salvador Perez. So that's where that gap is. That th This is, and we've seen it, it is a Chiefs town, but it can be a Royals town at the same time. And that's what you know the Royals and their fan base are hoping to get back to. It's been, it's been a dry six, seven years since that magical two-year run of back-to-back -back American League pennants and, and a world championship in 2015. The reason why everyone is so excited is the youth that you're talking about. So when we talk about Bobby Wood Jr., to me, it all starts there. But 
Now you add in MJ Melendez, who has uh, close to a full season under his belt. You add in Vinny Pasquantino, who who had a, a, a very intriguing few months, uh, three, four months in the big leagues. Th- those guys, to me right now, all look like locks to be productive big leaguers, and we'll see you know, at what level. But there's more to it, too, and I know you study all of this, but when you start looking, um, the verdict is still out on Nick Prado. He came up. He, he's a gold glove caliber first baseman. He wasn't hitting, and so they did send him back to AAA. He's got some work to be done. Um, but I, I, a really intriguing piece, um, along with the guys that I mentioned, is Drew Waters, who is a second-round draft pick of the Atlanta Braves and was surpassed by Michael Harris, the rookie of the year in the National League. He's a local kid, and uh, Royals had some history, or at least uh, some people that were that knew him well and, and believed that he was a five-tool player and a switch hitter that maybe a change of scenery and getting away from home would work. And you know, they, they traded him for, for draft pick compensation in July, and he made his big league debut in August after reporting to AAA. And really, I think you saw it when we were in Cleveland, really started to kind of come into his own the last week of the season where you could see the speed, the power, uh, the arm, all of it. And he's one that they're really excited about. And there's some others as well, guys like Nady, and just a lot of toolsy type of players, a lot of athletic players. And they're not all going to pan out, I and mean, it never never works out that way. But I think that they've got a lot of guys that, that everyone's excited about. And the architect of that roster, Joel, uh, is no longer leading yeah. the front office. You know, Dayton Moore has been replaced by J.J. Piccolo. Given that J.J. worked under Dayton for so many years, you know, what, if anything, really will change with this club philosophically? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. It's one that, that has been asked to me and to a lot of people over and over again. And I think we can already see some of it. I mean, I, I think that, and we've seen this over time in, you know, any profession, any sport, is that you see a change in leadership, yet the person that then takes over was the protege of the person that was let go. And so I think it's very easy to say, well, how is this going to be different? J.J. Piccolo is his own man. Uh, he learned and he would tell you, and he's told us that, that a lot of what he learned in, in baseball came from Dayton Moore and, and from a lot of Dayton Moore's mentors. They, they kind of came up, you know, through the same ranks. But the new owner of the Royals, who just completed his third year as owner and really his first normal year, you know, I mean, you, you buy a team with your ownership group for a billion dollars, as John Sherman did. And the first year as owner, you got a 60-game season. And the second year as owner, you've got limited fans and, you know, restrictions and all that. And so last year was the first year. And it didn't go well. I mean, his first full year, and there were there were really nice expectations on this team. Uh, if everything went well, maybe they could be a 500 team. Well, they had a terrible year in terms of record. Uh, a, a lot of growth with these young guys, but but very underachieving. And so, you know, the owner John Sherman felt like it was time to make a move, and they really believed that JJ Piccolo could be that guy, and that he was going to do things differently. I, I, I think I think David, time will tell how different they are. What what I know is that Dayton Moore, who you really, I don't think you'll find anyone that has bad things to say about Dayton in the baseball world. He's so highly respected by executives, by scouts. Scouts from every team love him because he, he was a scout. He understands the importance of, importance of scouting and, and, and all those roles behind the scenes. And so I think that if there is a knock on Dayton more that people say, Dayton's used to say this, is that he can be too loyal. 
And that's a rare trait to have. I mean, it's an incredible trait to have. But I think that they would like the Royals to be a little bit more transactional. Take the way the Tampa Bay Rays do things, which I think is a good model for the Royals, a smaller market that seems to have figured out how to be relevant every single year. And they, I mean, as you and I are talking right now, the Rays made, I think, three moves yesterday. And none of them were major headline news, but they are constantly turning things around. And, and as they would say there, they don't make moves just for the sake of making moves, but they, they can be quick to, to pull the trigger on those and, and keep innovating and, and keep creating. And so I think that they, they wanted to go in a different direction, but they felt like they had a lot of trust and a lot of belief in J.J. Piccolo to do things differently and put his stamp on it. Then the other piece to that, David, is that, you know, they went outside the organization to hire the manager. J.J. Piccolo's first big act as as general manager, he was general manager technically beforehand. It was kind of like what you see in a lot of markets, right, With like a Kenny Williams and a Rick Hahn. So Dave Moore been elevated to president. Uh, but now this is, I mean, J.J.'s leading the baseball department. It's his department. First act that he that he made, first big act was to fire Mike Matheny. And he went outside the organization to hire a manager. It's really the first time they've hired a manager outside the organization since my first year in 2008 when they had hired Trey Hillman, who had been in Japan and formerly with the Yankees. And while the last two managers after Trey Hillman were known for being elsewhere, Mike Matheny with the Cardinals, Ned Yost with the Milwaukee Brewers, both of them spent one year working for Dayton Moore in the organization as special assistants or you know advisors or whatever it is roaming the minor leagues. So they had worked for the Royals already. In hiring Matt Quattrero from Tampa Bay, who is highly respected, talk to anybody around the baseball world, he comes with a perspective that will be completely outside the organization from Tampa, uh, where he was Kevin Cash's right-hand man, and before that, learning from Terry Francona in Cleveland. So that's where you're going to start to see the change with this young team, with a heavy emphasis on pitching, which has been a, a major sore spot for them and one that they've really struggled with. Uh, in terms of development, and so we'll see where that goes. But they now officially have an outside, you know, an outside voice leading the way in their manager, who just also brought in a bench coach from Tampa, and now they're waiting to to hire a pitching coach, which I I, I suspect will come from outside the organization as well. And with pitching in mind, Joel, I actually spoke to J.J. Piccolo at the GM meetings in Las Vegas recently, and he brought up how young the pitching staff was this year, which certainly was a factor in the not-so-impressive performance. But that said, there comes a time where young, talented pitchers really need to pick it up. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the staff, as constituted, is big league quality? Not yet. I think... First off, I, I think they've got to fill in some holes. And I, I believe that they will go out there and probably find, you know, two veteran starters. And by veteran, I'm not talking about, you know, somebody with experience, right? I mean, somebody that, that has had at least a few years in the big league. Someone that that is, you know, in that 27, 28-year range, maybe 26. Someone that's got some control that, that maybe they could trade for. They, the, the Royals are in a market size where they're not going to win battles for major free agents. And that's fine. They don't need to. Tampa doesn't win battles for free agents. Cleveland doesn't usually win battles for free agents. So you've got to be able to develop or you've got to be able to trade some of those pieces that you did develop in your minor league system. And I think that's where you're going to see the Royals get more transactional. But as far as the pitching goes, as you mentioned, and when I say that they need a couple of veterans in there, 
They need some guys to lead the way. One of those two veterans, in all likelihood, could be Zach Greinke. They loved what Greinke did last year. They loved the influence that, that he had on the younger players. He's not going to be a leader per se, but he's a guy that, that these young pitchers were astutely watching last year. How did he go about his routine? Pitch selection, all these different things, which was good. But I think, you know, Zach's going to be 39 years old next year if they have him. Very serviceable at that age and, and certainly met expectations. I think they might need another one. And in having that, then you don't have to rely on all these guys to figure it out because they're all going to figure things out on different timelines. And as I look at this, uh, you know, and, and you know who these, these guys all are, they were very, very highly hyped when they were all drafted the same year, all these guys out of the 2018 draft class, the five top Royals picks in the first, I think, 56 or 57 selections in Major League Baseball that year were all college pitchers. Four of them have been to the big leagues already, and only one seems to have figured out, and that's Brady Singer. Brady Singer, to me, looks like he is poised to potentially be the opening day starter, you know, if he's healthy. Next year, he certainly should be in consideration for that. They just named him their pitcher of the year. He went back to the minor leagues, oh, I don't know if it was June or, you know, at some point this summer, went back, worked on some things. They tweaked a little bit of, of, the, of, of his grip. Also started working, not started, but worked more on his changeup, full well knowing that when Brady Singer is on, he could dominate as a starter with two pitches. His two-seam and his slider are that good and have so much movement that it's enough. But if he's not locating or one of them is not on, then he becomes very predictable. And so it was a matter of time for him to just get to the comfort level of being able to throw that change up 7, 8, 10, 12 times a game instead of once or no no times at all. And that really, unlocking all that, uh, he, he looked like one of the better pitchers in baseball the final couple months of the season. But none of those other guys have taken that jump yet. And so Brady was the top pick of that group. Jackson Coar has been dominant in AAA. Brady's college teammate at the University of Florida has not been able to put it together uh, every time he's been up in the big leagues and has not translated yet. Chris Bubich has been up and down, but hasn't put it all together yet. Daniel Lynch, all those guys from the same draft, Bubich from Stanford, Lynch from the University of Virginia. You could see signs with Lynch, tall, lanky, lefty. He has all the makings and all the stuff of being a really good big league pitcher. Hasn't consistently put it together yet. Carlos Hernandez, who if he were an American kid coming out of college, would have been talked about the way these guys were, uh, came out of Venezuela. I, I will tell you that in 2021, I heard from more broadcasters on other teams, more people in the business saying, where did this guy come from? He's unbelievable. And I thought that Carlos Hernandez was their best pitcher in 2021 with the most promise. Came up this year and just he couldn't throw strikes. The, the knock on him when he came up was that he's got great stuff, but will he be able to, you know, command and, and, and will the walks be down? And they were in 21. They were not in 22. He went back to the minors and came back and looked really good out of the bullpen. So I bring all that up because really, to me, the only one that is really looks like he's figured things out at this point is Brady Singer. So they've got a long ways to go. So looking into your crystal ball, Joel, which of the young pitchers not named Brady Singer is most likely to take a big step forward in the upcoming season? That's the question. And I don't have the answer, uh, obviously. But if I had to bet on someone, I'm not a better either in a day and age where everybody seems to bet on everything. But I think I'd bet on Daniel Lynch just because of the stuff 
I mean, I, you know, a tall lefty like that with great stuff should play. But again, he's got to put, put this together. And one of the biggest reasons why I think I hesitate to answer that question is that, you know, as we're sitting here right now in the middle of November, still don't know who the Royals pitching coach is yet. So, I, you know, I, if I don't know who that is and those pitchers don't know who it is and what their style is and, you know, all of that, it's a tough question to answer. Who who's going to click best with this pitching coach? Who who or or coaches? I don't know what they're doing. And you know, um, who's going to be able to unlock what is there? Will somebody be able to unlock what is there? So I, I've said for a couple of years now that I think Daniel Lynch profiles of all of them as the most likely to be a you know top of the rotation, a one or a two type. I, I think that you know if he can put all that together, you've got a really nice one-two punch with with singer and lynch but i i to me right now my biggest curiosity my biggest curiosity going into the season was who are they going to hire as a manager and they did and now it's who are they going to hire to lead this pitching staff it's one of the biggest things that matt quatrero talked about in his introductory news conference with the kansas city media was that we 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 have to get this pitching right in order to be where we want to be we have to get the pitching right is your expectation, Joel, that the incoming pitching coach will be a lot more in tune with analytics than Cal Eldred reportedly was? Yes. And I can't speak to what level Cal Eldred was or wasn't at. I know all that information is available to everyone. And I will tell you that this era's pitchers or this younger generation of pitchers coming up, they expect to be able to live in that world of analytics. They know how to live in that world of analytics. Now, you know this as well as I do, that not every single one of them is, you know, is is delving into every number on fan graphs. Not every single one of them wants to sit there and, and, and read through all the numbers and read through all the analytics because we all, our brains all work differently. We, we know that and, you know, there still are and will forever be that kind of good old sea ball hit ball mentality. But more young players coming up, especially if they've come from college, but even all the highest of club levels in high school, they've been exposed to all of that. And so I think the biggest key that a new pitching coach has to have and this new manager, uh, which he talked about a lot, is an ability to communicate all of that information in different ways. Communicating with Chris Bubich, who is a very cerebral guy, I'm pretty sure I remember you talking to Chris, is going to be different than talking to Brady Singer, which is going to be different than talking to Daniel Lynch or fill in the blanks on whoever your favorite team is. And so this is not a one-size-fits-all. It's really not all that different than any, any other profession at this point, that to communicate with the younger generation, they're all going to be different, and the, 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 the best – leaders are going to be the ones that figure out how to tap into each single one of those people's, you know, thought processes and, and making them comfortable. And so whoever comes in, yes, I think, I think they will have a big analytics background. Uh, they'll be very open-minded. It is really the biggest reason why the Royals owner wanted to make the changes that he did in terms of GM, in terms of manager from JJ making that hire is that, and, and then let me, you know, let me also say that it's not like the Royals, ignored analytics. It's not like the Royals are first discovering analytics. They've got a department and a guy by the name of Dr. Daniel Mack, who has led that department for a number of years. But I think that they felt like it was time to take it to, to another level, to get to a level that other teams were at. 
you see some of the most successful teams in baseball that, that have invested so much into it. They do want a balance. They want that balance of everything, you know, the scouts and the eyes, the numbers, uh, serving as checks and balances for everything that they do. But back to the question, whoever this new pitching coach is, is going to have to be able to live in that world. And I think that that's the expectation. And I think I'd be shocked if they found someone that, that did not live in that world. And we're starting to run uh, short on time, Joel, but I want to hit you with uh, a few more quick things. One on a player. Is Scott Barlow on the short list of most underrated relievers in Major League Baseball? I think so. And, and you know, you, you've seen him now pitching up, you know, in person, uh, seeing seeing the Royals twice late in the year. And yeah, I, I don't I don't think the average fan really is paying a whole lot of attention to Scott Barlow unless you've got him, you know, in fantasy baseball or something like that. But I think what makes him so dangerous, along with a, an incredible slider, is that he's kind of a throwback reliever. You know, you hear now about, oh, if you're going to try to get four outs or five outs from a closer, he's never done that before. Well, Scott Barlow does it on a regular basis. It might be three outs, it might be four outs, it might be six outs. Matheny, we'll see how Cotrero uses him, but Matheny was using him regularly in the seventh inning if the meat of the meat of the order was coming up and it was a close game and he he's kind of the same every single time so yes highly highly underrated and and i think one of the better they got him out of the dodgers system but he's been with them a while i think one of the better success stories in terms of development for the royals and another player somebody who is even less known nationally is michael garcia tell us about michael yeah we got you know just a little bit of a glimpse of him a couple of times up in toronto when the royals had a lot of players unvaccinated that didn't make it. He came up and got some playing time there. He can hit. The fielding looked like it needed some work, but he's young. He listed off to me when I when I met him in Toronto all of um, his relatives that have played in the big leagues. People may not realize it, but he has like his uncle's Kelvy Escobar. His cousin is Alcides Escobar. He's cousins with Ronald Acuna Jr. He's got like seven members of his family that have played in the big leagues. So. You talk about a guy that, that has that background, that's it. He's still young, he still has some work to do, but I know that they're really intrigued by him. And he is a shortstop, I believe, Joel? Yes, yeah. Right. He's a shortstop, so you can push him wherever. And Bobby Witt Jr. is, to you, the shortstop going forward? Do you think he eventually ends up on the corner? If I had to make a guess, I'm going to guess he ends up on the corner, but I know he'll go wherever they want him to go. I, I think he'd love to be at shortstop. What what kid growing up playing shortstop wants to leave shortstop? They do need to figure out their base, by the way, too. And whether Bobby's that answer for them this year. The X factor, which has been for a lot of years now, is Adalberto Mondesi. And I, I compare an Adalberto Mondesi, I know it's a different position, a little bit to a Byron Buxton, that when they're healthy, and he Buxton has stayed more healthy than Mondesi, but he's had a lot of issues, too. Those guys are just wired differently, almost like a fine piece of china, and they break down, and trying to figure out how to keep guys like that healthy can be difficult because they do things physically with their body that just aren't normal. Adalberto Mondesi, when he's healthy, I think is one of the top 10 players in the big leagues, and people can push back on that if they want. Um, I get it. He hasn't shown that he's one of the best players in the big leagues because he hasn't been able to be healthy. The question becomes... If Mondesi can get healthy and stay healthy, that was the hope this past year, and then he tears his ACL. Uh, I mean, it's been one thing after the next, and so I think he only played like 10 games. If he's healthy, he's he's arguably the fastest guy in baseball with major power. He's a guy that can lead off or back cleanup, switch hit, shortstop, or play third, 
or they could always try to move him to the outfield. But they've got to determine whether he is in their future or not. Can they keep relying on him, or do you just sort of stick him on the side and he's a bonus? And I think that if they if they unlock that, whatever it is, good or bad, yes, he's here, no, he's not here, then you can start putting some other pieces in place because it was the same thing last year. Is Witt going to play short? Is Mondesi going to play short? So they, they still have to figure all that out. I think the one thing we know, David, is Bobby Witt Jr. will be there. He's been very durable, at least over the course of his rookie year. So whether it's short or third, I think you know that you've got him slotted into one of those. And if Bobby Witt's career goes as planned, he will be playing – and if the new ballpark idea comes to fruition, Bobby Witt will be playing in another ballpark eventually. I know that news came out yesterday. We're talking yeah. on Wednesday. How soon do you think a new ballpark is going to happen in Kansas City? And how will that impact the franchise and the fan base? Well, I think it'll impact the franchise in the greatest of ways, just like any new stadium can give people a boost. Um, I, I think like a lot of places, change is always difficult. And I think that wherever we live, and I've I've worked now in enough markets, but I've been here 15 years doing Royals baseball. We're, we're like a lot of other communities. We're we're slow to change, and then when it happens, generally people embrace it. What I'm hearing from a lot of people right now uh, are a combination of things. I've got some sets of friends and you know fans that I know here in town that are like, "This is great! Finally, downtown baseball." I'm in that camp myself, not because the Royals are pursuing it, but because I travel around the country. And I know what downtown baseball looks like, and it's a beautiful thing in, in Minneapolis and Cleveland and, and in Detroit and in Baltimore and in Denver and San Diego, to name a few. And I think it would be incredible here. We have a, a really growing and thriving downtown, which is different than when I got here in 2008. But then you hear from other people that are saying, this is my childhood stadium, and I just want to tailgate. And, you know, how, how can they take this away? So there's a lot of sentimental value. I mean, Shoot, David, I grew up in Philadelphia before moving to Chicago, and I still think Veteran Stadium and the thought of Veteran Stadium gives me goosebumps and a better feel than any stadium in the history of baseball. And it was a dump, but it was my dump. So there's a lot of sentiment. But I, it'll happen, I believe, and I'm saying that without any clue as to how it happens in terms of politically and financially. I just I think this is an ownership group that had this on the radar when they took over. It's not like they woke up one day and just said, okay, let's do this. And I think that as far as the timeline goes, here's one that people are talking about a lot here, maybe not a lot nationally, is that Kansas City was one of the announced World Cup cities for 2026, the smallest city in, I believe, North America to get a World Cup. And a lot of those games are going to be played at Arrowhead, which shares a parking lot with Kauffman Stadium over the course of a few weeks. I've heard a lot of people say that they would love to be able to get this done prior to 2026 so that there isn't that conflict whether they can pull that off i don't know but i I would think that we see a downtown stadium in kansas city they're still trying to figure out uh, between a few locations too at least publicly that's what they say i think 2026 maybe 2027 at the latest and one last question joel the kansas city royals with their young talent could very well be on top of the al central by 2026 is it possible that the 2023 Royals could actually be the 2022 Cleveland Guardians? It's possible. Sure. But I, you know, I, I, for me, I think a lot is going to have to go right, you know, and, and there are certain teams in baseball that have that margin of error where even on a down year, and I'm thinking about, it's hard to compare, you know, Kansas City to a big market team. 
you know this. If Boston wants to turn things around next year, they could go all in and try. It doesn't guarantee that they'll do it, but they could throw all their money at that, just as some of those bigger market teams can. That's not going to happen here. So you've got to get everything right. And Cleveland seemed to have gotten everything right last year. But I think look at a market like St. Louis, where they get just enough right every single year that a bad year is still above 500 and, and, and battling for a playoff. That's where they want to get to. I don't know if it happens as soon as this year. It's also very hard to say that. We, we all want to make these predictions this time of year, and we're making blind predictions, and it's already hard enough to do that because we don't know what the roster is going to look like. But to me, the most intriguing thing going forward with the Royals is just seeing a, you know, a, a new management team, a new manager, new coaching staff. They're actually keeping their hitting coaches who did really well. They, they came in during the year last year from uh, the minor leagues and really connected with the players. So I think that's the biggest question is what do things look like now here under new leadership? But I, I do think, you know, last thought on this, David, and I know you're, you're wrapping it up, is who's the dominant force in the American League Central as we speak right now? I mean, this division is wide open for the taking, and I don't mean necessarily in 2023. I mean, who, who of these five teams is going to build a sustainable group that can sit there and knock on the playoff door every single year? Because right now, I think every one of the five teams in this division have flaws. Agree 100%, Joel. On that note, spring training cannot come soon enough. Um, <laughs> no. We have long winters to get through in Kansas City, me here in Boston. Hey, and spring is right around the corner. So thanks, yes. Joel, for uh, coming on to Fangraphs Audio. I appreciate it, David. Thanks for the invite. Love what you do. And uh, I'll see you sometime soon at Fenway or wherever it might be. Sounds good, Joel. And thank you, everybody, for listening to Fangraphs Audio. Welcome to another edition of Fangraphs Audio. I'm Ben Clemens, and I'm joined by Eric Longenhagen. Hey, Eric, how's it going? Howdy, it's going well. Uh, getting ready for Thanksgiving travel back to PA next week, and which will violently interrupt the writing routine I've been in for since uh, fall ended, basically. How's, how are things going on your end? Uh, they're going well. I think the main thing that I've been doing recently is traveling. I went to Nashville for a wedding. I'm about to go to Mexico City for Thanksgiving because we are not a, we're not go back east for Thanksgiving people. We're go somewhere with friends that's nearby people. So that's uh, that's been occupying some time. And just trying to get a handle on where all the free agents are going to go has taken up a chunk of my time. I mean, it's, it's nothing compared to you trying to start to wrangle together all these lists. But I think it's kind of nice that November, there's not a ton of baseball, but there's a ton of baseball related stuff to do. Yeah, the uh, and the pace of it without a lockout is more variable, but also things will spread throughout the offseason in a way that I don't know, I think will be nice. But we had our first chunk of transactional activity over the last week or so. A lot of it has been small. There's just been a high volume of transactional activity uh, in the lead up to the 40-man roster deadline. And I don't know, it's it's obviously a world that I'm immersed in. Almost literally some of the decisions on the margins made were involving fall leaguers who were playing up until the weekend leading up to this. So, you know, when, when the Braves DFA William Woods as part of their roster deadline day. He had been dominant in the fall league, but over the last couple of years, 
he's been here and in the big leagues, like you see some of the issues with command and fastball playability. You just know over the last six weeks, they've basically been evaluating this guy and decided, even though he pitched well out here, no, like we'd rather have someone else. So little stuff like that. That's interesting to see up close. You don't know what's happening as you're like being part of it necessarily. Although, you know, if you look at the Braves roster situation, you can anticipate that this is a thing that they have to be thinking about. And so we had a bunch of that stuff, but I'm curious what, if, if you have any interest in that day, like, is there anything that piques your interest in related to this day on the calendar? I mean, one thing that does interest me is I wonder how much, like, for, call it 25 teams, this, like, the 40-man the crunch ends up affecting their future fortunes. Because, like, all of these players are, like, I'm looking through the, the, the people who are DFA'd on Tuesday. And there's a lot of good players. You know, like there's a lot of players who I think of as just comfortably major leaguers, not stars, but like Tuki Toussaint, Sergio Alcantara, Aristides Aquino, Bradley Zimmer. I'm just looking through randomly, kind of reading in a row. William Woods, Jordan Luplo, Jake Brent. I guess he's hurt. But like lots of people who I think, oh, yeah, like, you know, if that guy's on your major league team, like it's fine. But I wonder how much that actually affects like the end fortunes of teams. For not the Rays, obviously the Rays live like they, they were born into this. You know, some teams have inherited the the forty man crunch, but they've been living this their whole lives. Like the Guardians, it really matters what they do. But like, I'll, I'll give you an example of one that we were talking about before the podcast started. So the the Braves got Sam Hilliard, and that led to them DFAing Guillermo Heredia. I don't see any meaningful difference between Sam Hilliard and Guillermo Heredia. I'm curious if you think that like there's any kind of long-term expectation of a different outcome for the Braves based on, you know, the sliding doors of which guy they kept. I think there are things about roster fit that makes, you know, a subtle in-game difference. Obviously, some of the things Sam Hilliard brings to the table in this case specifically, you know, he runs really well. So he'll bring a thing to the table that Guillermo Heredia was also bringing to the roster in probably a less explosive way. But, you know, Guillermo Heredia hits right-handed and the rest of the left field, you know, outfield contingent, center field, Michael Harris is left-handed hitting. You know, Guillermo Heredia became redundant in a way and you could see, you know, the Braves had to decide between things like, you know, Eddie Rosario is making a ton of money and they have Sam Hilliard and Guillermo Heredia and Marcelo Zuna and... Yeah, so you have a lot of guys yeah, who aren't like, very good making money in the so, outfield. So, you know, they have to make this decision. They have an outfielder overage, and it's all sort of little marginal decisions like this that maybe have an in-game impact if you look at an individual game. And for the last six weeks leading up to this, with the playoffs, all we had is stuff like that where you want to, you know, have someone on the bench or you... Matt Veerling and Brandon Marsh and Edmundo Sosa and Bryson Stott, like those things end up mattering sometimes in meaningful moments. So, yeah. But I think the thing that is more broadly interesting and applicable to the rest of the offseason discussion is where everyone finds themselves after this day. So, for instance, Arizona. I'm curious. Arizona, they've added to their roster Jorge Barosa who, shocker, it's a compact left-handed hitting outfielder who can play center field and has good bat-to-ball skills. And Dominic Fletcher is a compact left-handed hitting outfielder. So wait, I I have a question for you on that. (laughs) 
do they need like 70 Alec Thomases or Corbin Carrolls? Well, like why are, are those guys like, is it pressing that they get them on the 40 man? I guess they'd probably be taken. I don't really know. It just seems weird to me that, uh, <laughs> that their plan is to just get the same guy. So then my question to you is pref this group out. If you had, if you're the Diamondbacks, mm-hmm. you enough of these guys are good. You think that they need to be protected here. Pref them out. Who are you most likely to want to trade? And what do you think is an interesting target for the Diamondbacks, given that they have this clear surplus of these young, left-handed hitting, well-rounded outfielders? So they can't keep everyone, clearly. That's I don't think obvious. they can go into opening day next year with, yeah, this roster's were full of young outfielders. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. So... I don't see any way where they're trading either Carroll or Thomas. Like, what would what would the point be? Both of those guys I, are kind of like their guys. I guess I think that most of the chatter that I've heard initially has been surrounding Thomas, but they would sort of be selling low on him in a way. He was very young for a guy who spent all year in the big leagues, but I think there are red flags around his propensity to chase at this stage. Yeah, so... If you're going to trade Thomas, I mean, you should get a, a sizable return. One of the problems is their holes are, well, they're myriad. Like, they, <laughs> they're not short for places they can improve, but they need to find a team who has, like, a controllable young guy, right? They're not, they're not going to trade for somebody approaching free agency. It doesn't fit their window. But who also wants to get back Alec Thomas and who can give them a better current major leaguer for that. I don't see an obvious way to do that. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to me if you're the Diamondbacks to trade him for kind of future considerations, you know, for for stuff that's going to make you better in 2025. That's kind of weird. I don't think that would make a lot of sense to to kick the can forward when you're, in theory, trying to graduate a lot of these guys to the majors soon. I so think it's, what's the fit? Yeah, like I agree. I think that you have to search for a fit. Like Cleveland is an interesting fit where I could see Arizona – packaging one of these outfielders, I would try not to trade either Varsho or Corbin Carroll. And given that Alec Thomas is in sort of a weird spot, having underperformed a little bit, but, you know, he's very young. I would try to, you know, he's a sort of volatile player at this point who I would avoid trying to trade. He feels like you're selling low and I don't know if I want to do that. McCarthy, Jake McCarthy, and some of these other guys who were added, Fletcher and Barossa, maybe them plus Christian Walker with Cleveland. So Cleveland's not running Owen Miller out at first base and Oscar Gonzalez out in a corner. Maybe Oscar yeah. Gonzalez is actually good and I'm wrong about this, but he's just the most aggressive swinger in almost all of pro baseball over the life of his career. Yeah. I think at I some don't point think he's going to turn into a pumpkin. Great. I think he's good for what they need, which is like, oh, uh, we need a guy, you know? And, but I think they would prefer to have like a, a more patient hitter. Jake McCarthy would, I agree with you, like suit them a little bit better. The problem is Cleveland's going to take on three guys on the 40 man. That's always their problem. Sure. And right. Totally agree. That's why they'd have to move. They'd have to feel good enough about their pitching depth that that is what they'd have to send back to Arizona. Like Arizona needs pitching depth to compete with the other big fish in their division. they I feel like they have, you know, some of the everyday position player pieces are starting to fall into place, but the pitching depth part of it they need. And Cleveland is able to produce pitchers. So it's just, do you want Xavier Curry? Do you want Tanner Burns? Do you, you know, those guys aren't necessarily on the 40 man yet, but 
if Cleveland wants to re- retain those guys and thinks that they that group is ready, then maybe they have enough pitching depth to to swap pitching for slugging first baseman in Christian Walker and one of these young outfielders, even if it's just someone who they think can platoon with Gonzalez if they believe in him. I think that's a, a, an interesting fit. But you do have to one-for-one 40-man one pieces at, at this point, especially on Cleveland's end of a deal like that. What do you think about – so Baltimore protected Seth Johnson, who had Tommy John last year. They had two other guys who had TJ last year. The whole group basically will miss 2023. What do you think about protecting versus rule-fiving a rehabber and using a 40-man spot on on someone who you're not going to get anything out of. Like It's been done a couple times where teams have Rule 5 to rehab or because they can stash them on the 60-day IL. Once the season starts. So I'm curious if you, if you have thoughts on that. I think you want to be – like you don't need to stash everyone. And it doesn't seem to me like the Orioles had such a precarious 40-man crunch that this, is, this, this was causing them real pain to put Seth Johnson on the 40. Unless I'm missing something, it just seems like fine, right? Like aside from the other rehabbers, it's not like they're they're losing anyone obvious in a Rule Five draft. They're the ones who use the Rule Five draft still. I mean, they won't this year, I guess. But I don't see anyone where I'm like, oh man, I can't believe they didn't put that guy on the forty. So if you have the space, like, why not? Yeah. Like I think Seth Johnson's a major league pitcher. Probably some team with more space would Rule Five him and put him on there, like a bad team. But why not? Right. It would have to be another team that is in a rebuilding phase where, hey, we've got these three or four 40-man spots that we're just using on developmental players. Washington is in yeah. in this boat. Washington had three additions who have not really played above a ball because they can traffic in you know the meat of their 40-man players 30 through 37. They're the fringe big leaguers on a, on a bad team. So it's fine over the course of the next calendar year for them to make some of that group vulnerable to waivers. They're unlikely to be claimed. And if they are there, it's not likely that that player was a long-term piece. They can do some of the stuff that like the Giants seem to love to do. The Giants were super active again on this roster deadline day, just in terms of the raw number of transactions they had. They always seem to be loving to play with the fringe, like the margin of their roster when if they can. But yeah, Baltimore, hopefully they're on the upswing and they they are entering a phase where they don't necessarily want to be doing that. They have fewer roster spots that they can j- just sort of file away to use on developmental players. Uh, they want to start to compete in within their division. But um, so as I look here, other like, than this Johnson, puts their... 40 man at 39. Yeah. And if they need to, they probably have a little bit of room. Like they could they could DFA Jake Cave. I don't think that's uh that's gonna hold them back from making any moves, is my guess. Like they have they have a little bit of space. How many free agents are they signing? I'm not sure, but if it's more than two, I guess I'd be a little surprised. Yeah, maybe maybe some some other bullpenny types like the Jorge Lopez types. Yeah, but if you do gonna, that, like yeah. then it's not the end of the world if you have to DFA like Yenier Cano or something. I like, but sure. I kind of get it just because I think any of the free agents they're likely to sign this offseason aren't likely to be better in 2024 than Seth Johnson. Like any of the kind of fringy relievers. Like I thought he was pretty good when he was in the majors. And yeah. it doesn't feel like a huge cost. I wouldn't do it like indiscriminately, but I get what they're doing. And then, I mean, if it comes down to it, right, they can just 
DFA him. If it, if some unexpected opportunity comes up, then they can they can just expose him to waivers in December, and like that's okay. Peeking at Boston, two questions arise out of Boston's additions. One, Sedan Rafaela, their futures game rep. If I told you this guy was a no doubt plus plus defender in center field, and that he has playable power, but his approach is terrible. Do you think he's a slam dunk top 100 guy, given that he's basically big league ready? Mm, so terrible approach. Give me some. Is he Franchi Cordero with better defense? He might be. He might be what Pache. Like he's in the Pache bucket where, boy, sometimes this is really exciting. Look how much power this guy has. Some of the underlying metrics indicate, you know, just like the barrel rate proxy that I have in the minors. Yeah. Minors wide. His is extremely high for a guy who is a plus-plus defensive center fielder. He's amazing out there and can play some some infield as well. I don't think that that's actually going to happen in the big leagues. Like, this guy's just going to play center field. Mm-hmm. But I'm having a hard time. This is where I'm using the 45-plus. Yeah, he's not going to get a base bucket. ever, right? I, I really – I don't think so. And in Pache's case so far, his approach and pitch recognition – that piece of it has been so bad that he's just been bad. Even though he's very good defensively in center field, the A's were just like, nah, we can't handle this. And he basically didn't play. And so with Rafaela, I want to believe that there's a floor there because of how good the defense is. You talked about Bradley Zimmer and some guys like this. Like Just being able to play a good center field means that you are going to be a big leaguer for a while. But in Pache's case, even though we thought the ceiling was so high and that's part of why he's been valued where he was as as a prospect, that may have been wrong. His approach is just so bad. Yeah, and I worry that that's the case. Really have the power that that you'd want, right, Pache? If you're saying uh-huh. that Rafaela has like like legitimate plus plus power, look, Not maybe that Pache, big. Okay, plus power. Maybe Pache has that somewhere in him, but he's never shown it. Like not even in the minors. Pache was more about like the raw he'd show you, and Rafaela is more like it's average raw with big lift and just aggressive swinging in games that makes you think that it will show up like on he got a contact. little bit of Brandon Lau to him. Sure. Yeah. I mean that uh, if, if Rafael had ever hit that many home runs, it would surprise me, but it surprised me that that Lau did it. Yeah. I don't know that. I feel like those players like as a class struggle more than I'd expect. Like I'm with you. I kind of think that playing a, a very valuable defensive center field should be enough to like make you stick in the major leagues, but it doesn't, seem like it is <laughs> like most of the guys that we're thinking about who are like great defensive center fielders and don't hit are more like Jose Siri or something who like kind of hits. And that's not a terrible comparison in this case because some of the issues are similar. Kevin Pilar is an example of this where it's a low OBP, but he's running into 15 bombs and playing great defense. Anyway, if you guaranteed me Kevin Pilar and say he should absolutely be in the top 100, right? Like that's, I don't think there are even remotely a hundred players who will be as who will have as good of a major league career as either of those two, Jackie Bradley Jr. or Kevin Pillar. But there's a point in the minors where they are at a junction, and in one path leads to Kevin Pillar, and the other leads to Pache or you know Victor Robles even. Who was that guy that um, that Jeff always liked on the Brewers? Uh, He got traded to the Marlins. I can't even think of it anymore. Brinson. Yeah, Lewis Brinson. Yeah, I like Lewis Brinson too. And if you look at Lewis Brinson's strikeout rates in the minors, after they were scary early, they stabilized. Yeah. 
And it kind of seemed like he would be good enough and it just hasn't happened. I mean, there's a lot of, there was a time when I thought Cordero would play like plus defensive outfield and also have just massive raw. Yeah, man, Brinson has really, uh, really tailed off, huh? Like watching Trevor Lawrence in football where it's just at some point, the speed of the NFL and the quality of a major league slider is just a thing some people can't do. Triple A slider, fine. I can do it. I can't consistently beat the computer on all Madden. Like, I just can't do it, you know? I heard someone describe Kenny Pickett. His brain is writing checks that his arm can't cash in the NFL. And I thought that was good. I think that's a a real thing that happens to people in baseball as well, obviously. Where, like, you're like, I can get this. Like, I always hit this slider. Like, I understand that I'm swinging at a bad pitch. And then, oh, it just moved, like, two inches extra. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I mean, it seems like it's weird because you would say that he has a high ceiling, right? Because he has great defense and could hit. And that, like, if you're a, an average hitting center fielder, which sounds like Rafaela could be, that's really valuable. But he probably also had has a low ceiling in that he's never going to hit, like, 20% above league average. That, that seems really unlikely to me. Like, that, that's just hard. It's hard to hit 20% above average if you don't have a good approach. No no one yeah. really does that in the majors anymore unless they're, like, an absolute, f- just, like, phenomenal physical specimen of, like, power. It's, it's really hard. Like, Luis Robert, maybe. Or Luis Robert. I always get that wrong. It's Robert. I've heard it a bunch of different ways. His uncle has told me that it is pronounced Robert. Good enough for me. Just a guy who was around the backfields who's like, oh, yeah, I'm his uncle. All right. <laughs> He's 20% above league average with the bat in his career with a terrible approach, but he's one of the best athletes in baseball. Bo Bichette. Yeah. But so, again, like, yeah. okay, there, there's not many of these guys. So, like, in some ways, it is both high ceiling and low ceiling, like high ceiling of value, but low ceiling for the bat, I would say. I'm skeptical of these guys working out, but, you know, every time I do one of these, uh, like the prospects I like lists, it's guys with good approaches, basically. <laughs> guys with good approaches who make a lot of contact. I just love those kinds of prospects. So I may be predisposed to uh, to not like this style of player. I guess, are there any non-playoff teams from 2022 who you think were trending up in a way that this day is meaningful for them in like closer to the margins of like a 500 record? Like, do you think Miami is trending in a direction that will allow them to compete in the NL East, for instance? I do not. Maybe they'll prove me wrong, but I think that a smart bet has been that you shouldn't expect the Marlins to take steps forward. It just seems too disjointed, and they're just going in too many ways and don't quite seem to have a handle on things. I was hopeful that the Kim Ng tenure would uh, would change that, but it just doesn't feel like they've they've really changed organizationally. In a way where they're like sure building intelligently for the future and like that kind of stuff. I don't know. It, it's tough. Like I assume that there's a lot of ownership meddling and like imposed constraints there, but it just I, I don't quite buy it. And the amount of power they seem to like briefly give to and then later strip away in kind of a weird way, Don Mattingly doesn't give me a lot of comfort in kind of the yeah. meta structures of the team. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'll just be really wrong on that. I like a lot of their players. But it's not like they're going to get a better season from Sandy Alcantara next year. Right. And I agree with you that just some of recognizing what's happening here doesn't feel great from a process standpoint in terms of being able to accumulate prospect depth. And I've used a bunch of examples in some of the analysis over the last year where there are just a lot of instances where they're trading like multiple prospects for fringe relievers 
Dylan Floro type guys, like trading Alex Vesia and someone else for Dylan Floro, it's not great. And trading multiple pieces for Cole Sulcer and then he gets claimed off of waivers, like that's not a sustainable What if process. they get back for their um their reliever trade, like Anthony Bass to the Blue Jays? I don't even remember. They're kind of going both ways on dealing and acquiring relievers. Yeah, let me get there and I'll keep vamping on, on this. But I will say that the guys who they did add, um, I think they were right to move on from some of the guys that they DFA'd, like Jose Devers and such. Mm-hmm. And then some of the pieces coming up from within Josh Simpson and Eli Villalobos and George Soriano, who had like a velo bump this year when he was moved to the bullpen, is like an upper 90s guy now. Yeah. These are the types of guys that they – it is good to have coming through the system. Internally, they are they are either going to be competent on-roster relievers or good optionable pieces for the next three years at least. But when you're also trading multiple pieces for pitchers who essentially are that – and then they walk for nothing. Like that's that's part of it is that is, yeah, concerning to me. So it's like a mix of both. But I still think based on the pre-deadline, pre-trade deadline tr- chatter around them and like Ramon Laureano and they seem to have been interested in Cattell Marte in the past. And yeah. maybe they are, with all their pitching depth, are an interesting fit with the Diamondbacks for a trade again. And they love trading um, with each other. It was Jordan Groshans, by the way. So that, okay, yeah. It's actually a pretty decent return, I think, for two relievers. Jordan Groshans and right. a player to be named later. Like that actually worked not, out well for them. I'm lukewarm on Groshans. I like the bat-to-ball piece of it, but for whatever reason, the raw power that we hoped would come as he developed physically just hasn't, right? So I you know, I 45'd him, and I think at third base, that might be a stretch just because of what the standard of that position is right now. But yeah, yeah, Also like, because he's like... He's a good prospect. He's well behind their third base platoon that they currently have, and it's not like he's playing shortstop. Yeah, I mean, I guess my issue with it is... Have you looked at the roster that they like play, like their starters? I'll just read it to you in order. So John Birdie leads off, like sure, okay. Jazz Hislam bats second, great. That that's totally good. I'm very into that. Garrett Cooper bats third, okay, like yeah, he's fine, right, fine. Uh, Forty. Avi Garcia bats fourth. <laughs> it's getting iffy quickly. Right. Joey Wendell yes. fifth. Solaire, Brian De La Cruz, Jacob Stallings, Miguel Rojas. This is a bad lineup. Like this is an org that that doesn't seem great at evaluating approach, and that has been part of those guys. Yeah, where they've been burned here by Avi Garcia and like buying into Jesus Sanchez. I don't know if you can not buy into Jesus Sanchez. You just have to try it because of how dominant he had been in the minor leagues. But it was a scary part of his profile too. And yeah, like some of those guys have turned out to be free agent busts so far, like Garcia and and Soler's been hurt. And yeah, they needed to inject the lineup with power. They tried, but they picked the wrong types of guys. The veteran players who tend to succeed are your Josh Harrisons and Azdrew Ball Cabreras and Johnny Peraltas and Gene Seguras. As as you know, the bat to ball skill seems to be the one that ages well, which is why like Joey Wendell was more of a okay, he was a version of that, and then he also dealt with some injuries and I liked the Joey Wendell trade if they were close to competing for the playoffs, which sure. they were not. So but like yeah, if they had four more Joey Wendells, I think I'd like this team a lot more. It feels like there's just a lot of these uh there's a lot of players where the floor is so low. And they also gave up just an absolute mint to get Jacob Stallings. I mean, just the most, right? 
Right. And then Nick Fortes had a good year. Like they, Nick Fortes, they traded, they've swapped catchers with the, the Brewers and the Braves both so many times over the last couple of years that I've lost track of how many times. But like Nick Fortes, he had a pretty good year. He's pretty interesting. And, but yeah, like we'll see what they do. I'm just trying to think of who the, some of the other teams who we heard were into making buyers type trades around the deadline time, yeah, but aren't necessarily competing. Obviously, Kansas City's now moved on from their leadership group yeah, to an extent. Also, like they're bad, so there's a. I mean, they're they're bad with no hope of being good next year. I think, and I think that they've kind of recognized that that they were kind of trying to make a run at it this year. And like, I don't know. I thought the idea of bringing in Grinky to be a veteran leader for their pitchers was neat. Didn't really yeah. seem like it quite worked, but I thought it was a good good shot. I, I didn't have any issue with. Uh, that at all that didn't work out that's fine i could see some of the like all of the al central teams like the white Sox and twins both being playoff teams next year and being buyers that's that's kind of a boring pick but they're not that far behind the guardians i'm not even sure they were true talent behind the guardians overall on the year like the twins dealt with just a hilarious amount of injuries and the guardians had no one hurt all year i think those teams are pretty close the white Sox also obviously struggled with injury and yeah just the whole soap opera of it all. It wouldn't shock me if they were uh, if they became better. I'm with you. The Twins bullpen was not great outside of Yohan Duran. I thought they gave up a lot around the deadline to try to shore it up. Yeah, I understand why when you have Carlos Correa on your roster with an opt out looming. Yeah, you know this is it feels you feel a different sense of urgency. I think and I, I believe that is probably appropriate, but yeah, some Remains of those seen trades what they look do rough with the money later. Like right. they, they theoretically have all this money. This is a bit of a, a divergence and we're kind of rambling at this point, but I have something that I've been wondering about. Do you think that the way that teams value kind of defensive first E framing plus catchers is going to change? Because I think there have been a lot of teams getting burned in various ways that they acquire these guys in the last few years. Like, the Jacob hmm. Stallings trade just did not work out for the, the Marlins. It almost doesn't matter what these prospects do. Like, he's just, it's not been good. And any, like, kind of short-term surplus value they thought they were getting, it's gone. Like, it didn't it didn't happen for them. The same's definitely the case with Austin Nola. I mean, ooh, that trade hurts in retrospect, right? Like, the Padres would look a lot better if they hadn't traded for Austin Nola. I totally agree with you. The framing, if you're relying on on framing metrics... I think that that stuff tends to vacillate hugely, significantly yeah. year to year. There are so many variables influencing how you're going about assessing that and what and what leads to a pitch being framed and the pitchers on a staff. And so yeah. I think you still want to incorporate a visual evaluation into the way you're thinking about that. I think that the framing metrics are important in terms of flagging guys for visual assessment. When you watch JT Realmuto do do his thing, it's amazing. It's clear he's incredible. Just if you're really just sitting and watching him receive every pitch and the way he's trying to, he's altering the depth at which he's receiving pitches to, to make them look more like strikes based on like type and location and all kinds of incredible stuff. And Will Smith, the way Will Smith is like rhythmic and will try to deceive the runner on second base into like he'll sort of deke them so that they're tipping the wrong location to the hitter sometimes like some of that nuance stuff is really amazing but yeah i would take a depth based approach to building my like team of 
catching where I, I would almost never want to trade for someone who's coming off some abnormal career year, especially if the way that year looks on paper is driven by the way that they have been framing. Try to take an opportunistic, like depth-based approach that runs me into guys like Jonah Heim rather than like go out of my way to trade for someone like Jacob Stallings. Yeah. A thing that is interesting to me though is like, so Real Muto and Will Smith seem to be great framers. I, I think that that is, and like great defensive catchers, but they have not really been accruing that much value defensively via, via their receiving, which is, I mean, maybe the value is just made up. Like maybe it's not real, but I thought we did a good job quantifying it. It's just strange to me. Like, like maybe no one's good at it. Maybe that's a possibility, but it seems like it's a skill. And like you said, Real Muto, just beautiful to watch. Like, just seems like a great defensive catcher. And you can watch him there and go like, oh yeah, this is real, right? Like, I can at least. Like, it, it seems totally legit to me that he is just really good at this. And he doesn't accrue a lot of value. And Will Smith kind of... I mean, I actually never watch Will Smith and think, yeah, this guy can do it. <laughs> but... I don't quite know how to think about it because it seems to me that I should, like you said, think these guys are good, but like, I don't know if I'd pay to get them. And then you have so many different types of pitchers. Yeah. And who whose honest staff is changing every year. Blake Snell isn't someone whose stuff gets framed. <laughs> His stuff either makes a guy swing and miss or it doesn't. You know, like it's not someone who's nibbling on the edge and needs the help of, but it is interesting to see. And, and some of your piece that ran today, I think is interesting to look at through this lens because you have some stuff in there on guys, edge percentages. And there is like, there are like some trends just visually with some of the pitchers in each of these groups. Now I want to go pull it up because like some of the guys I noted who are towards the bottom are like sidearm, submarine, lateral action guys. Like that matters too in the way it's going to influence catchers framing numbers year to year. Yeah. It's interesting. And they also see. literally don't hit the hit the corners to have a chance at getting a frame or getting a good receiving job. Like they, they're just not hitting them. So right. that makes it like, you know, the catchers catching those guys are, are facing an uphill battle. And kind of vice versa, if you're catching DeGrom, like you got to be a... It'd be real dope to not get the benefit of the doubt because the umpire knows where it's going because everyone knows where it's going. It's going to the corner. So what, what's your original question that you might anticipate organizations are not going to value this relatively soon or it's a thing that we will? Yeah. Like, do you, do you think is it automated balls years, and strikes related? It's not even automated balls and strikes related, although I guess that would you know push the deal further this way but do you think that in three years we're gonna be like man like remember that crazy run that teams had of trading for like catchers who they thought were really skillful defensively has the approach to pitching since the jose molina era changed enough to almost make research done during that time moot yeah has that's the essentially way we've developed, question. i think it's possible yes that like we have such a swing and miss based approach to pitching league wide now that what you get from framing the the pitchability guys on the edge is perhaps not as is important like Jose Alvarado is just coming in doesn't matter but even as good as JT Raul Muto is back there what he's about back there with Jose Alvarado pitching is just not framing anymore it's blocking and 
target setting for him, you know, and, and, and different stuff like that. But yeah, but it is no longer about him trying to steal strikes on the edge. And Maldonado, same thing with Brian Abreu pitching for you. Framing is not what you are trying to do. It's just here comes an 89 mile an hour power curveball and get in front of it so <laughs> you can block it. Good luck, um, buddy. But for yeah. Urquidy, you want to be framing. So yeah, it's. I agree with you. It's interesting to think about. And so much of it is like, is this catcher bilingual? And can right. he communicate with everyone on the staff? And is there like trust in him to, so that the pitcher with a runner on third base and two strikes is going to throw that breaking ball in the dirt with conviction and all kinds of little stuff like that? Yeah, I, I just wonder if we're going to think about this later and go, man, we just had no clue what we were doing. I think that that's true with a lot of stuff. I think radar guns maybe made us worse at evaluating pitching for like 30 years. <laughs> really? Like if you didn't know how fast the pitch was and you were just visually assessing quality, don't you think you're going to be more sensitive as a scout to things like angle and shape and yes, yeah, rather yeah. than leaning on? So yeah, I think in the draft, especially when in a pre-track man era where velocity was the main objective measure of any pitch that we were seeing other than some of the performance data that would become more and more granular certainly before trackman we could evaluate if we wanted to sit there and measure it like the swinging strike rate on a given pitch you know you could conceivably send scouts to college games or whatever to do that but yeah like when velocity was the king data point for measuring pitching maybe we got worse at it for a while and weren't sensitive to why some of these slower fastballs are doing well and vice versa. What else led to you to write this what if pitching were a carnival game piece? What kind of inspired it? I mean, honestly, I have just always found it very visually pleasing to see people like paint the corner, as it were, okay. like to just exactly dot the toughest place to hit. And I, I just find it very satisfying when pitchers do it well. It's funny to watch this gif of Phillips Valdez missing his spot, but still hitting a corner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought that was nice to uh, nice to put in there. Like, it's amazing to me how often he is hitting corners based on the fact that, like, I mean, he missed almost every spot in that. Like, it's very strange that uh, he doesn't seem to be hitting his spots, and yet he does seem to be doing a just an impressive job of doing enough, doing enough to win. I want to know if edge percentage is predictive year to year. Uh, And if it is, I bet it would be for some guys and not for others. Yeah, so I have looked at versions of this question before. And the answer is essentially, well, like, in the aggregate, it is not, if that makes sense. Like, if you look at it across the entire league, it is not. But there are some people who are consistent standouts. So shocking to see Hunter Brown on this list, the Astros pitcher who has huge stuff and, like, terrible command visually but when your command when you the whole point of your fastball is to command it at the very top of the zone and your focus with that pitch is that narrow yeah you're gonna get a lot of point is to live there like even if you miss right you're gonna get a lot i think that there are guys like that who get a lot of edge pitches without necessarily trying without being that fine like Degrom is just that fine right he's actually aiming for halfway down the outside edge and hitting it but if you just pitch high in the zone with a fastball, you're going to hit the edge a lot by accident. The baseball's a lot wider than the edge. And if you're a sinker guy, I think it's a little harder because you have more total movement and it's kind of running in. A lot of the sidearm guys like you were talking about, same deal. Like 
they just work with a kind of a, a tougher spot to hit the corner because the ball's moving more and there's not quite as much to hit. So some of it is that. A lot of it is not predictive year to year. Even if you just look at people who throw around the edges of the plate rather than actually hitting the edge, it's not super predictive year to year. And yet DeGrom and Kyle Hendricks are up there every year. So <laughs> say, say what you want. It's kind of predictive, but kind of not predictive. That's something that I just wish I was better at statistics for because there are these statistics where some people are good at it. But the fact that the broad, it's unpredictive for the broad mass of players drowns that out. And I don't really know how to account right. for that. Yeah, you almost have to have year-to-year correlation for every individual and then have like a leaderboard of who's strongest year-to-year. Yeah, there's some like, you know, you need some way to understand the signal based on past, based on data, like samples larger than a year. But I think it's smart if you see a new pitcher doing this to assume they won't keep doing it. But... That doesn't mean they won't. It just means that it, guys do have the skill, but it's rare. And I don't really know how much to think about that. Yeah. That said, I would love to see a carnival game where you have to throw your fastball, but you have to hit this superimposed box. I think that'd be really fun. I'm in on that as an all-star weekend activity yeah. where as part of some sort of skills competition, you have like target shooting basically for, for pitchers, pitchers the same way. It would way. be amazing. Yeah, you could for... And, and for catchers throwing down to second base too would be super sweet. Wait, I have a, a catcher question I've been wondering about a lot because I don't think catcher accuracy to second base matters that much. And I have a, an explanation for why I think that. That take is hot. Yeah, I want to hear the explanation. So basically, you're mostly not going to get the guy anyway. Like, let's say that you're 80% accurate to second base, but your pop time makes it to where you're only going to catch the guy 15% of the time, like with an accurate throw. I think that's entirely believable for plenty of catchers like they're just not fast enough and so even if their arm's accurate they're just mostly not going to get the guy like you, you could do everything perfect and you could be online 80 percent of the time and it's just not fast enough like it's just not it's not there and that's the case for plenty of steals right it's like you know everyone's mechanics could be perfect and it could could hit the guy it could hit the guy in the glove and it just doesn't matter like like the runner just stole the base off the pitcher and stole the base with the fact that the catcher is not J.T. Romuto or, you know, peak Yadier Molina or something. Like, there are times when you can be dead accurate and it's just not going to get there. I think, yes, okay. So, like, let's but, say that you're going to catch the guy 15% of the time with an accurate throw, let's say. And you're accurate 80% of the time. So that means you're going to have, like, a 12% caught stealing rate. That's not great. Now, let's say that you could only be accurate 50% of the time. So, like, just gun it and lose, let's lose half your accuracy. Now you only throw on target 40% of the time. But by throwing just harder and just like going all out and ripping it, you're up to, I don't know, a 30% chance of catching him. Then you're like, you're break even kind of. And I guess my point is like, yeah. because most throws don't catch the guy, like even for any catcher, there's no catcher who catches the guy most of the time with an accurate throw. That I feel like your pop time just matters so much more than your accuracy. That if you can, if you can subtract from pop time it's worth way more than accuracy is basically my argument because most stolen bases result in success so delta graphs essence of baseball the japanese fan graphs actually did a study a handful of years ago on a question sort of like this and they found that there's an area in which you are correct mm -hmm. and then there's like a window between super good fast pop times and the very slow pop times and if i recall correctly it was between it was like right around the two second average, like basically between 1.95 and 2.05 seconds mm -hmm. where all that mattered was the accuracy. 
that where certain players separated themselves in that range was whether or not they were consistently accurate. Well, that makes sense. If you hold the pop time constant, it's better to be accurate than not accurate. As you were describing that, all sorts of things were firing for me. And so some of them I wrote down as you were talking, but like for sure, if in an era where not making it out on the bases is of utmost priority, it's a, it's an organizational philosophy almost almost uniformly at this point that like you need to swipe bags at a 75% clip or more, or you should not right. be running. Right. Then I think in most scenarios, unless the catcher is so bad, then the pitcher is the more reliable thing to try to steal the base off of. And so it is pitchers who are slow to home, right? Okay. And so there's something about catchers being back there because they have met a certain standard of viability that I think is important to remember in in this case. And on the high end of like the quickest pop times, I totally agree with you. But I do think in this window right around two seconds that it is almost all that that matters. And I think there are some times where even guys who are getting rid of it quickly and have a hose, mm-hmm. their throws are so inaccurate that it doesn't matter that they have that. So I don't know how to measure it. We had ways of marking it at like sports info solutions if the throw was off the bag mm-hmm. in addition to logging the pop times. But yeah, like obviously there are all sorts of other factors that play into any given throw. Yeah. The location of the pitch brings a guy across his body if he's catching on a knee or not. Like all these different things play into it. And yeah, I guess I would just say I would like to see catchers be willing to sacrifice accuracy to lower their pop time more. I mean, I guess they kind of do this already. Like it is very important to get the ball out quickly. If you can improve your ability to get the ball out quickly, that's the vast majority of the work. Because even if you're only accurate 30% of the time, that's enough to stop people from stealing. You just need to have a, a low pop time, basically. Compromising your mechanics in certain situations might be the only time, the only way you get rid of the ball quickly enough to even have a chance. Yeah. And so taking that chance that you are inaccurate, but you're trying to do something crazy like that sure that makes sense to me like you not everything is going to be like a de facto pitch out where it's a fastball up and away from the hitter you get a nice you have to come out of your crouch as the pitch is approaching you and all that stuff like sometimes you just have to pick it and and let it go no doubt a different way to phrase it is you're mostly drawing you're an underdog almost all the time when you're trying to throw a runner out by definition of the way that steals work sure and so you need to gamble and so i think that People don't think about that enough, and they just think, like, if catchers are throwing well, they should be throwing runners out. They mostly shouldn't. Like, a runner, runners are good. Like, the average stolen base rate in baseball is so high now that I, I feel like catchers, uh, like, just speed matters more than accuracy because you're you're just always drawing so slim to get the guy anyway that you, you can accept plenty of sprays in exchange for uh, for getting them more often when you hit the jackpot and make your throw. I think the catchers already do that implicitly. There are a lot of different ways to skin a cat in this scenario. And yeah, like, I'm not even sure there's a way you'd you'd have to do it manually, I think, to measure any kind of, to have any sort of catcher accuracy metric. Yeah, it's almost unmeasurable because so many other things matter Maybe, but like, I guess Hawkeye could do it. I feel like the problem is defining accuracy also is tough. Like it's not always clear where the best place for the throw to go is. Right. And obviously some of the throws are like right on the bag such that the throw, the placement of the throw 
is the only thing that got the runner out. Like those yeah. situations where the catch and tag are made almost simultaneously. We saw a few of those in the playoffs as well. Yeah. And then you have the nice, clean, like typical knee-high throw that is on the bag. And then even and in that situation, it, yeah. you yeah, you need a good tag from your infielder. And then there are situations where the th- the infielder makes the decision that there's no way we're going to get this guy. And they cut the throw. Fails, yeah, yeah. Right. And that is, you have to throw those pop times out if the infielder is coming back toward the throw to cut it early. Yeah. It's an interesting and tricky question to solve. I, yes. I wonder about it, but I, I don't really know that there's like an answer. Yeah. And you're right. Like on its face, it makes sense. I got to find this study again, but, but yeah, there's, they make the argument that at a certain point, all that matters is the accuracy of the throw. But yeah, like even just writing Omar Narvaez's free agent capsule to go watch every throw down to second base he's made this year is to say, oh, like this is a real issue, you know, and I can see how this in certain situations, like some teams could turn games against him into a track meet, especially when whoever the starting pitcher is is also slow to home. So what's his problem? Accuracy, speed, both? He His is an arm strength issue. Yeah. Where mm-hmm. he, there are lots of times he can't even get the, the ball to the bag cleanly. Yeah, there's nothing you can do about that. That's just like, right. yeah, that, that's not fixable by changing your mindset. That's just, uh, yeah, you don't have enough arm. He couldn't he, overthrow the bag into center field if he wanted to. <laughs> well, he should be gambling as much as possible on every throw then, you know? And maybe he already is. Yeah. Maybe he yeah, already is, yeah. and it's just uh, there's just nothing more to add. That's an unknowable thing, I suppose. All right. Well, I think we've. I'm not sure there's anything else that I've that I have on the docket to kind of discuss with you. I mean, yeah, just, I'm just. I'm totally out. I think we've gone. Uh, we've gone a lot farther than I expected to, and you know, gotten pretty far afield. And I still don't understand why teams trade for Jacob Stallings, but you know, that may never be solvable. <sighs> yeah, I don't know. I'm not sh- catching is so hard. Like catching so hard, you just. Gobble gobble up all the interesting catchers, the you know your Johnny Paredes and your Donnie Sanses. Go about it that way, I think. I know who one of those two players are. That's uh, it's pretty good. <laughs> one of them would be a fringe five prospect for sure, Johnny Parada of the Giants, who yeah, they signed that, as a minor league free agent from the Cubs. And then Donnie Sands is on the Phillies 40 man who was like upper level Yankees performer that got squeezed off of their roster and the Phillies traded for last off season. And yeah, he's like a quad a power hitting catcher type guy who doesn't play because the Phillies have JT Real Muto. Yeah. It's, um, there's uh, no truth to the rumor that Tony Cruz is trying to come back into baseball to be the backup for Real Muto since he can't be Yachty's backup anymore, but it wouldn't shock me. That's, that's the cushiest job in baseball. I've got lists on the horizon. How about you? What you got? A trip to Mexico. I'll probably, I'm looking to finish up the managerial report cards. Managers are pretty good these days. Uh, so they're getting less interesting to do. I think, I think most managers just kind of get it at this point in game decision wise. And that most of the stuff they do that's good, I can't measure, but I will measure the stuff I can. So I'll finish that up. Probably write something about the Braves being turned into a public company, which is honestly profoundly uninteresting to me, but you know. I'm the guy, I'm the finance guy at Fangraph now that Craig yeah. left, so got to do that. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm hoping that there will be some awesome free agent signings. I don't have a lot of uh, a lot of stuff that's really thrilling me on like uh, on the docket, so I'm excited to go on vacation. Watch some World Cup in Mexico. going to be incredible. Oh, yeah. I bet that'll be fun. Watch the Mexico game in Mexico City. Uh, hope they win. Oh, my God. Yeah. You got to do that. <laughs> yeah. Even as a guy who doesn't really care for soccer, I'm not going to like, you know... 
denigrate it. It's just not. It's not for my thing me, either. Like, yeah, not my thing. But I'd absolutely still do. I'd still World Cup. I mean, I love the gung ho uh, for doing that the pageantry. Yeah, and we're gonna be getting that. Oh, see, you know, you're making me want to talk about football again because I learned over the last few weeks that college football is what is starting to take root internationally. It seems like the pageantry and atmosphere huh. is what is translating and not like football itself, which is just not as good at the college level. Anyway, all right, well, have a great trip, bud, and I look forward to catching up with you in public again soon. I cannot wait. I'll see you soon. <laughs> all right, see you, Ben. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Joel Goldberg for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider sharing it with a friend or two. It helps us out. After you've perused the Fangraphs shop, don't forget the Fangraphs app, free on the Apple Store and Google Play. It's a great way to keep all of our analysis and statistics accessible on your smartphone while you're on the go. And finally, make sure you sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. That way you won't miss all the cool stuff we have going on this offseason, which will be plenty. That'll do it for us this week. Have a good one and we'll talk to you next time.